70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, this is Jonathan from Kentucky in the United States. I started listening to Korean music a couple years ago, and that led me to the podcast version of One Fine Day. And I really enjoyed uh, Lena's segments with the other guest hosts about uh, dramas and several decades of Korean music. And I learned a lot, and it was very entertaining. And I discovered that I could download the KBS World Radio app and listen to the rebroadcast and also hear the music. Uh, so it's pretty much a daily listen for me at this point. Uh, I also like to check in on K-Pop Connection because um, they play great music as well and also keep me informed on entertainment news. And I just want to wish everybody at KBS and especially the people that make it possible a, a happy 70th birthday. And I look forward to the next milestone, uh, which will probably be 75. Uh, so I, I'm still going to be a listener then, I'm sure. Thanks. 70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Thursday, the 30th of November, and welcome to another edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. Kim Yong, a close aide to Democratic Party leader Lee Jae-myung, has been sentenced to five years in prison for receiving illicit election contributions. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Last week, the Korea Medical Association warned that its doctors may go on strike if the government goes ahead with its plan to increase the medical student quota. We'll examine this issue today for our in-depth. And coming up for Explore Korea, we discover the dystopian sci-fi world of artist Omyo Cho. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. Kim Yong, the former vice president of a liberal think tank, and also known as the right-hand man to main opposition Democratic Party leader Lee Jae-myung, has been sentenced to five years in prison for receiving illicit election contributions. Uh, KBS World Radio News Editor Koo Hee-jin joins us in the studio now to brief us on the ruling, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, Zhang So Kim was found guilty of receiving hundreds of millions of won from a private developer that was then used as political funds for E's presidential campaign last year. Mm-hmm. But first, can you give us details from the court ruling? Yes, a close aide to main opposition Democratic Party chair Lee Jae-myung was hit with a sentence of five years in prison and a fine of 70 million won for violating the Politi- uh, Political Funds Act. The Seoul Central District Court on Thursday handed down the penalty for Kim Jong, a former head of the head, a former deputy head of the Institute for Democracy think tank, while also ordering him to uh, repay 670 million won or around 
$520,000. US also sentenced over the Tejangdong land development scandal was attorney Namuk, a key figure who got eight months in prison, while Yu Donggyu, a former chief of planning for the Songnam Development Corporation, and Chang Minyoung, uh, who once served as the head of the corporation's strategic project team, were both found not guilty. Prosecutors had alleged that Kim colluded with the chief planner to uh, receive a combined 847 million won in illicit political funds on four occasions between April and August 2021 from those who benefited in the development project. Uh, We should remind our listeners that at the time, the DP was preparing for a presidential primary with Kim, the vice chief of then-candidate Lee Jae-myung's election camp, tasked with securing and managing election funds. Indeed. The prosecution suspected that the money was used as political funds for Lee's presidential campaign, with the court finding that Kim received 600 million won in illicit political funds and 70 million won in bribes. Kim was also charged with pocketing 190 million won in bribes from 2013 to 2014 from you in return for business favours related to the Jiangdong project. And the prosecutors sought a 12-year prison term for Kim, who was immediately taken into custody after sentencing as the court expressed concerns over the potential destruction of evidence. Meanwhile, at the National Assembly, a bill led by the main opposition DP seeking to impeach the chief of the nation's broadcasting watchdog was filed on Thursday. The ruling PPP is planning to stage a sit-in protest in uh, in response. What can you tell us? Well, Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo accepted the motion after the DP decided to seek the impeachment of Lee Dong-wan, head of the Korea Communications Commission, and two prosecutors. The main opposition, which holds a controlling majority in Parliament, plans to pass the motions on December 1st, that's Friday, in order to comply with the 72-hour rule on reported impeachment bills. The ruling People Power Party immediately slammed Speaker Kim Jin-pyo for failing to remain impartial regarding the motion, saying that the main plenary session on Friday was supposed to handle the nation's budget for next year. The PPP is planning to sit in an all-night protest within the National Assembly starting 9pm. In other news, President Yoon sung yeol on Thursday newly established the post of a chief of staff for policy and replaced all of his senior secretaries. Can you give us the details of the announcement? Presidential Chief of Staff Kim Dae-gi announced the result of the president's latest reshuffle, which included appointing Lee Kwan-sup, current ch- uh, senior secretary for policy planning, to the new position. The major overhaul in the top office comes roughly a year and a half after the launch of the incumbent government. The presidential office will now run under a three-pillar system led by the presidential chief of staff, the chief of staff for policy and the national security office. The president also replaced all his five senior secretaries, including those for political affairs and his senior press secretary, as well as secretary for civil society, economic affairs and social policy. Okay, let's also run through some other headlines now. In a widely expected decision, the Bank of Korea held its key interest rates steady. Still, the central bank cut its growth outlook for 2024 in the face of belt-tightening measures in major economies and ongoing geopolitical concerns. Can you explain? 
Well, the central bank has kept the uh, key rate steady at 3.5% for the seventh consecutive time. The decision came during this year's eighth and final rate-setting session of the Bank of Korea's Monetary Policy uh, Board on Thursday. The South Korean central bank is facing the largest ever two percentage uh, point rate gap with the U.S. Federal Reserve. A pressure for a rate hike, however, has scaled back with key Fed officials hinting at a possible first rate cut according to BOK Governor Lee Chang-yong. While maintaining its growth outlook for the year at 1.4%, the central bank revised down the forecast for next year by a tenth of a percentage point to 2.1%. The former head of the Buddhist Choge Order, Venerable Chasung, died in a fire that occurred at a temple in Gyeonggi Province on Thursday. What can you tell us? Well, the police are carrying out an investigation into the cause of the fire while considering that the death may have been a suicide in light of a note uh, written by the monk stating that an autopsy is unnecessary and everything was captured by security cameras. The order stated later that Tuesday, later Tuesday Thursday that they believe the uh, monk took his own life by immolation following the Buddhist practice of burning oneself alive as an offering. The note Notes reportedly included an apology for the inconvenience caused and an assurance that the damage inflicted on the Chijang Temple dormitory will be restored by his disciples. Born in 1954 in Chuncheon, Kawang Province, uh, Venerable Chaseng became a monk in 1972 and began working for the Choge Order in 1986, going on to serve as its leader twice after being elected with the highest ever approval rate in 2009 and earned earning another four-year term in 2013. Meanwhile, negotiations between the government and a group representing the nation's doctors resumed a week after the group walked out of a consultative body to protest the results of the government's medical school quota survey. Can you elaborate? Well, at a 19th session of the consultative body on Wednesday, Korean Medical Association's chief negotiator, Yang Dong-ho, accused the government of breaking an earlier pledge not to unilaterally adjust the entrance quota. Yang said the survey, which showed that universities were in favour of doubling the current quota of 3,058 by 2030, was not conducted in a fair and objective manner, only causing confusion within the medical community. He then urged the government to first put forth a detailed roadmap under which doctors voluntarily transfer to essential or regional medical service systems. The health ministry, for its part, expressed regret over the KMA's move last week, to, as well as the mention of a possible strike, urging the doctors' group to present empirical grounds to back their position. We'll look closer at this issue for our in-depth next. But first, we wrap up our news briefing here. Hijin, thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. In June this year, a pregnant woman who was holidaying in Sokcho, Gangwon province, went into labour in the early hours of the morning. An ambulance came to pick her up, but they were unable to find a hospital that would take her due to a lack of appropriate facilities or specialists. She was eventually flown 200 kilometres to Seoul via a medical helicopter, 
where she gave birth to a healthy baby. This case highlighted the regional disparities in healthcare, with patients in provincial regions coming to big cities due to a lack of specialist doctors. In order to mitigate the situation, the government announced plans to expand the number of medical school students starting from 2025. However, the Korea Medical Association strongly condemned the plan, saying that the government should instead explore ways to better allocate physicians. The KMA has also warned of a possible strike if the government pushes ahead with the quota increase. To talk more about the issue, we're joined by two legal experts and political commentators. First, we have Lord Professor Chui Kyung from Hongik University. Professor Chui, hello. Hello. And we also have affiliate Professor Kim Byung-ju from the Hongik University of Foreign Studies as well. Professor Kim, hello to you too. Hello. So, Professor Chua, can you start us off by explaining to us how serious the shortage of doctors for essential Medicare services are in South Korea, particularly in provincial regions? How do you view view the situation? So, for all of us participating in this discussion right now, I think we don't really realise how incredibly serious uh, doctor's shortage is in the provinces. The example that you gave in your introduction referred to an incident that occurred in Sokcho, Gangwon province. And it's something that you cannot imagine happening in Seoul or even Gyeonggi area. Uh, and, and the fact that you had to be flown in a specialist medical helicopter 200 kilometers uh, to essentially you know, give birth this is something that shouldn't be happening uh, in a developed country like Korea. Now, for the last 18 years, the uh, medical students' quota has been fixed at 3,000, slightly over 3,000 uh, places. Mm. And that is far, far short of the required number uh, that we, our population needs. Now, a lot of people argue that, well, our population is rapidly decreasing and therefore the doc- demand for doctors would naturally decrease and there is no need to increase. This is the KMA's position, one of their several arguments. But the fact is we are a very rapidly aging society and therefore uh, medical needs actually become greater as population ages. And so we actually need to increase doctors' numbers. And we are far, far short of even the OECD average. And according to the, uh, Professor Kim Yoon at Seoul National University Medical uh, School, he says that even if we increased the medical students' quota by 5,500 people per year for the next 30 years, we would only barely reach the OECD average by then. And uh, also uh, lots of research reports show that we are between 10,000 to 27,000 doctors short currently. Uh, And we have come across many, many, many news reports and anecdotes about emergency patients who are essentially being sent from one hospital to next because there is no emergency beds or slots available. Uh, Pediatric patients who cannot find a pediatric clinic uh, to be looked after. And even, uh, you know, in provinces where they cannot fill doctor positions uh, despite offering 
really large salary, like 300 million one per year, even for inexperienced doctors. And mm. so this is an untenable situation. Professor Kim, how do you view this situation? And what do you think is the government's thinking behind its plan to increase uh, the medical student quota as a solution uh, for this issue? I guess the, what government has in mind first and foremost is uh, what we just discussed uh, the, uh, you know, in, in this uh, segment today so far, the, the shortage of doctors or you know, lack of supply or insufficient supply of the doctors here in Korea. And as we look at the numbers, the OECD statistics, uh, according to the OECD, took back in 2021 out of uh, 1,000 population. Uh, the leaders like Austria, Austria and Norway, they have more than five doctors per 1,000 population, 1,000 people in this in, in their country. And uh, countries like uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, Czech Republic, and uh, uh, Lithuania, for instance, those countries they have more than four doctors per 1,000 uh, you know people in their country. How many uh, doctors do we have in Korea? Less than three. Uh, so that's uh, way far below the OECD average, which is a 3.7. Korea re- uh, requires 2.6. So that's way down. And actually, it's uh, bottom two. Only Mexico is below us. And the overall situation is very, very serious in, in that sense. So, uh, you know, for, first and foremost, the supply problem needs to be resolved. And government is making the right decision in terms of pursuing this direction of increase of the supply of doctors. There is no doubt about that. Additionally, however, if I may uh, talk about this a little bit uh, on the other side, uh, the, the, the popularity of uh, medical school, uh, the excessive competition among Korean high school students to get into medical school, uh, what does it say? What it says is that because the supply of doctors has been limited, there has been extra rent being created, uh, doctors making a lot of money, uh, doctors living well, so well above for other, in comparison with other professions, everybody wants to become medical doctors. And that is a rent seeking that's being created because of the shortage of supply. And I usually don't support market solutions in other policies as, as easily, readily like this one. And this one, I believe, market solution is necessary. We need to increase the supply of doctors so that we should lower the price of doctors, meaning the the, the profits doctors are making. And therefore, we can solve the problem of the excessive competition to get into medical school. And overall, that's going to fix a lot of uh, related problems altogether. So it's not only the, the patients needing more doctors, but also the, the, the distortion of education and the distortion in terms of people's job seeking and all that kind of stuff. A lot of issues are related to this. Right. So it seems both our professors are on the same page on this issue this week about the need to increase uh, doctors in South Korea. Uh, the government hasn't set a number yet on how big the increase uh, will be in their plan to increase the medical student quota. Reports suggest that it could be uh, over 1,000 over the current limit of 3,058. 
But the KMA argues that simply expanding the number of medical students cannot be the solution uh, to address this shortage of uh, essential medical personnel or healthcare disparities between regions, even related to the case we mentioned earlier about the uh, pregnant woman who was caught uh, without a doctor in uh, Kangwon province. Uh, one expert said that there are, uh, are 5,000 obstetricians in the nation, but it's just the fact that there weren't enough in the Kangwon province, that there are plenty in Seoul and Gyeonggi province, as uh, Professor Chua mentioned earlier. But it's about how the, uh, the doctors are allocated around the country. Professor Chua, what do you make of this argument? So I find a lot of arguments by KMA rather self-serving and uh, self-interested and also selfish. But here, I actually do agree that simply increasing the number of medical students quota is not going to solve the problem. I believe the government had initially said some doubling the existing quota, which is adding another 3,000, but that sort of like um, disappeared and now we they seem to be talking maybe 1,000, but they, as you say, they're not really uh, coming up with a, an exact number. However, regardless of how much you increase the quota, if the the new newly admitted doctors uh, then open up their practices in Gangnam area, focusing on you know uh, beauty clinic and dermatology and plastic surgery, then it's really all for naught. And even now, uh, there are actually quotas that are allocated for provincial campuses of medical schools, but that's actually being exploited and misused by uh, the schools who then essentially, um, after getting the admission quota numbers um, set for the, the, the provincial campus, they would then essentially allow transfers to the, the capital region campus. Uh, and the thing is, even now, you know, provincial jobs are not that popular, particularly among medical doctors, uh, because of the the, the the environment that you live in, uh, education for their children, etc., etc., and uh, you know, they were making the point that the the supporters of increasing quota, but is also uh, actually changing the system, were making the point that unless you actually train in in the provinces and you you know grow roots there, you're not suddenly going to move from Seoul to the province. That's not going to be a natural choice, and so one solution that being strongly advocated is to actually allow provincial governments to determine their own uh, needs and set quotas for medical schools uh, in their region and also for that to become like a feeder for the regional hospitals. And I think that's really the only uh, way we can solve the problem of doctor shortages in the provinces. Professor Kim, your thoughts on this situation as well, about uh, the disparity, about how it might not just be increasing the number of medical students, but uh, it needs to be about how uh, the doctors are dispersed across the country. Perhaps that is the more uh, important issue. That's what the KMA are saying. KMA doesn't make sense in that regard because they're talking, uh, they're saying 
they oppose the increase of number of uh, you know medical students students because there is a problem with concentration of uh, certain specialties. That set of logic doesn't work. Basically, we need to increase supply of doctors so that we can address that problem that they're talking about later. Overall, uh, first of all. You know, like, again, I don't usually support market solutions in many of the issues, but this one, we need market solutions. So let's say we increase number of doctors altogether. And then maybe we should just liberalize in terms of, you know, uh, the regulations on who should go into which areas. Uh, you know, th- this plastic surgery, eye doctors, dermatologists, uh, you know, let these students choose those professions and, as the supply increases, their rent will shrink, and there will be market solutions. The popularity of these uh, specialties will go down, and there will be, hopefully, possibly, equilibrium we can find. At the same time, as the supply of doctors increase, there has to be increase. I can guarantee you there will be more doctors available in, in provinces, in local areas. Uh, it will naturally happen anyway. But blocking the increase of the supply of doctors by emphasizing that we have this imbalance in certain different specialties and it's going to only increase the the supply of doctors into this specialty area. It's a total nonsense argument. It's not even an argument. It doesn't make any sense at all. Professor Cho, what do you make of that idea that uh, perhaps market solutions uh, is the answer by increasing the medical uh, uh, the the supply of doctors naturally there will be an equilibrium it won't just be doctors who go into uh, more lucrative professions for now in plastic surgery and eye doctors but uh, as uh, competition increases uh, the price will also become more competitive and they uh, more doctors will opt to choose for different special specialties so in theory if we could leave it up to the market then According to the law of supply and demand, uh, there will be an increase in supply by getting rid of the the quota. Uh, More doctors will enter the market and the price will come down and there will be a happy equilibrium. Now, what we're forgetting is the fact that we have the national health insurance system, which actually sets how much doctors get paid for different procedures. And the reason why doctors are attracted to fields like plastic surgery and Uh, and also added extra services that they sort of try to inveigle you into taking when you visit uh, the hospital for even other uh, procedures is because they don't really make a lot of money uh, providing services that are covered by the national insurance. So this is why if you go to lots of hospitals that profess to be, let's say, external medicine or internal medicine, they still do pretty, you know, surgeries for like beauty uh, procedures and, and things like that. And so once again, this is where I really <laughs> hate to say that I'm actually in agreement with K- KMA, but uh, as well as uh, giving more control to the provinces regarding uh, medical students and how and their training, what's also necessary is to look at how the doctors are paid for their services. Um, Obviously, with the national health insurance system in place, it can't just be left up to the market as to what they get charged. But uh, the fields that the doctors are attracted to are those fields where they can provide services 
they are not regulated by the the the, health, the national health health insurance, and which means that they can charge a lot more. Mm. I mean, not a right. lot more. In, and, and make a lot more money that way. Right. And so that's another issue that needs to be addressed. So this is not just a simple, you know, chuck, <laughs> increase the poor quota and, and we'll be fine. Uh, that, that's really not going to solve the problem on its own. Right. For now, uh, both uh, rival political parties are welcoming the government's plan to increase the medical student quota as well in a rare show of unity. But of course, as we're saying, the doctors, nation's doctors have exhibited uh, strong opposition. Professor Kim, how do you suggest the government deal with this issue going forward, uh, take into everything that we've talked about today? Professor Kim? I think this will be a very important political issue uh, that this government will have to show results of uh, its efforts to resolve here uh, because it will signal a lot of different things. And, you know, as President Yoon has been talking a lot about cartels and dealing with social injustice and so on, uh, more than anything, I think this is an issue where uh, government has to act boldly and based on very strong social consensus that we have against uh, small uh, minority vested interest that is a doctor's group here. And everybody else agrees that we need more supply of doctors and therefore government has to act decisively. But at the same time, we will need political skill, of course, uh, and doctors or medical doctors have been very influential political group here as uh, in this country as well. So. Therefore, this government has to think very strategically, but however, uh, go ahead with firm conviction that actually what the, the, this direction that the government is pursuing is the right one. It has a, a strong support from the, from the people. And in a way, this is the real work, real mission for politics. When we think about politics, often public is led to believe politics is a lot, mostly about political struggle competition among competition for votes. Yes, it, that is politics, but that's the small part of one part of politics. The big part of politics is about collective choice making. And this society is close to making a collective choice that says we need more doctors. And, and this is a good example of uh, the country moving into one direction based on strong consensus. And that's what we have to do. And usually this kind of move is necessary in order to, as, as President Yoon has discussed, uh, you know, necessary to deal with oligarchies, mafias, and cartels. Right. And we have to break these kind of vested interests in order to uh, recover the market equilibrium and ensure the efficiency of the market right. and make sure the economy works as it is supposed to. So this is absolutely necessary work for the politics, and I'm glad to see the government choosing this agenda and setting the direction going forward. Professor Chua, I think I can only give you about a minute, but what do you think the government needs to be wary of in moving forward with their plan? I think the government really needs to be wary of simply letting go of this issue like they have uh, with so many other issues, including labor market reform, education reform, pension reform, etc. And now in the face of the defeat uh, of Busan Expo uh, uh, hosting, it, this is going to be a real test of Yun government's political mettle 
if they simply kind of, you know, fold under the pressure by the KMA and the, uh, the, the doctors group, and in fact, it's not even all doctors who are uh, against the idea. Most of the doctors who work in big uh, university hospitals are actually in support of increasing the quota. Anyway, I think it, this is going to be a real huge test, and people are expecting that President Yoon to exercise his bulldozer st- style and really sort of push it through. And if he doesn't, then they'll be very, very disappointed. We'll leave it there. Professor Cho Hee-kyung, Professor Kim Byung-ju, thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index went up 15.48 points, or 0.61% on Thursday, to close the day at 2,535.29. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also gained 9.24 points, or 1.12%, to close at 831.68. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 0.41 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,291. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for us to take a look at some of the other news stories that have been trending online. It is our daily segment, Courier Trending. And for that, we have with us in the studio, news editor Daniel Chair. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you again, Jungle. What do you have for us first today? Well, an off-duty nurse saved a man's life inside an elevator of a department store in Yoyudoso last Saturday. More details about her heroic actions are out following interviews and reports released on Thursday. Yes, footage of the incident has gone viral in the last couple of days. Uh, Can you tell us more about what happened exactly? Understand the man collapsed due to a cardiac arrest. That's right, the man in his 60s, who was together with his wife, suddenly collapsed and fainted while on board the elevator. A nurse named Yi Wan-jung saved his life. Right before the man collapsed, Yi's husband said, the elderly gentleman seemed to stare intently at his direction. He inched closer to his daughter, so the husband thought the man wanted to compliment the little girl. But then noticed the man's eyes rolling over, and his husband claims he was too shocked to do anything when the man collapsed, much less remember CPR training he received at work, in the military, and at school. Right, but fortunately, Nurse E was next to him and jumped into action to carry out CPR. Right, he immediately got to work without a second of hesitation, calling out to the collapsed man while conducting CPR and requesting his wife to quickly, the, the, the gentleman's wife, that is, to sure. quickly call 119 Emergency Rescue. She said she noticed his eyes rolled over and heavy breathing, meaning CPR must be conducted immediately. The incident became known through various online communities after E's husband uploaded the experience on a popular online community for office workers. Yes, it was all caught on camera and it was clear to see that it was incredibly heroic. You can see uh, Nurse E's daughter in her pram looking on as her mother saved the man's life as well. I think that aspect uh, drew a lot of people in as well. Do we know how the elderly gentleman is doing and what brought on the cardiac arrest in the first place? He was found to have been suffering from angina and has been taking medication for his condition. After being taken to a nearby hospital, he was able to recover fully with minimal treatment. And he is looking forward to meeting the nurse in person to thank her for giving a new lease on life. That's good to hear. A real feel-good story to start things off today. Let's move on now to our second story. What do you have for us? The world-renowned Metropolitan Museum of Art, or the Met, in the U.S. has chosen the works of South Korean sculptor Yi to be installed and displayed on its Fifth Avenue facade. 
The museum held a press conference on Wednesday local time in New York to unveil the details. Yes, Ibul is an artist we have talked about on Explore Career before, and this clearly validates her standing in the art world. Can you first get us better acquainted with uh, her works and what helped build uh, Ibul's reputation today? She began garnering attention during the 1980s. That's when she staged performances denouncing restrictions on women's rights. She later made a transition into glittering installations and cyborg-like sculptures that addressed the dystopian nature of progress and also the longing for a utopia. Many of her works have been exhibited in European and Asian museums, and the four sculptures in the niches of the Met facade will be her first major project in the States since the 2002 exhibition of futuristic singing room pods at the new museum. Right, so she's known for her take on hard-hitting topics and testing the audience. One of her highlights was uh, an exhibition titled Majestic Splendor, held at the Museum of Modern Art, or MoMA, in 1997, when she was barely 30 years old, featuring rotting fish covered in sequins. It was removed after visitors gagged at the smell. And in 2018, the piece was to be displayed at a Hayward Gallery in London, but it was cancelled after a fire broke out as one of the decomposing fish spontaneously combusted. It's believed that the incident happened as E tried to make the exhibition more visitor-friendly by using flammable chemicals to master revolting stench. Okay, so tell us more about her latest works that are going to be on view at the Met then. Well, the 59-year-old artist has been commissioned to display four pieces of art. She becomes the first Korean artist to be selected by the Met for works to be displayed in such a manner. Uh, more details will come later, but we, for now, we only know that she's been commissioned to work on these four amazing pieces to be displayed. Mm. The Met, considered the biggest art museum in America, receives more than 7 million visitors from all over the world every year. Visitors can come and admire E's art from next September until May 2025. Yes, it sounds like it's definitely one to check out for art lovers in New York. Let's continue on to our last story. What else has been trending today? The Korea's largest theme park, Everland, announced on Thursday that a photo of giant panda mother Aibao and her newly born female twin pandas was selected as one of Time magazine's top 100 photos of 2023. For our listeners who may not know, the U.S. magazine selects and publishes 100 photos that have greatly moved people around the world. Right, and this is the only photo from Korea that made the list this year, but it clearly had a strong impact uh, on the world over. Yes, the photo was taken on July 7th, right after the twins Ribao and Huibao were born. Uh, through the moment captured on camera, people across the world could feel the love of the mother toward the tiny newborns. It was released and shared by numerous international and local media outlets. One of the park's officials said it must have been selected by the magazine for giving hope to many by providing a glimpse into the miracle of life. Yes, it is an amazing photo with the cubs looking so small and so delicate as well. Uh, after checking out the photo, I'm sure many will be curious about how the cubs are doing and how much they've grown since then. Luibao and Huibao weigh less than 180 grams when they were born, so they were very, very small. Now each has grown to be more than 8 kilogram, kilograms rather, and is still growing fast and going strong. Mm. Their growth and development are well documented and updated via social media. The Kali duo continued to garner greater fan following by early next year. The twins will be grown up enough to be out and about to roam in bigger enclosures with their mom without close supervision by zookeepers. 
they will learn to adapt to even bigger surroundings than the outside world soon after that. Yes, we're all eagerly waiting their public unveiling. Their older sister, Fubao, became somewhat of a celebrity here in Korea. I'm sure the young twins will become stars in their own right as well. That's all the time we have for today's Korea Trending. Daniel, thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. up it's our weekly segment explore korea here each week we look to discover some cultural historical and travel highlights that the nation has to offer and helping us do that are our special contributors or explorers this week it's our arts and culture explorer anjo who has graced us with his presence once again joe hello it's a great to see you thank you so much for the kind words and it's great to see you too as well okay so what are we talking about this week okay so Changwo, you know like every now and then i say this either explicitly or implicitly, but the most important thing I consider when it comes to deciding which artist to discuss on our show is, of course, the nature of our show, therefore the nature of our listenership, right? In other words, what kind of art would our listeners have or show most interest in, or what kind of art inspires me to believe that it would be meaningful to introduce it to a global demographic who are interested in current social and cultural affairs, thus regularly tune into our show. And on that note, when I recently went to the latest solo exhibition of today's artist, I immediately told myself I have to Korea24 this artist. Yes, Korea24 today is a verb. But um, <laughs> this artist, she deserves all the attention in the world. So here we are. Today's artist is Cho Jonghyun. But of course, in the art world, way better known by her nom de plume, hashtag Oh Myo Cho. Uh, I like that. Verbifying Korea24. <laughs> uh, Korea24 and this artist. Okay, so Oh Myo Cho, she is... Uh, as you said, working under this pseudonym. But can you tell us more about her story then? Uh, what can you tell us? Okay, so she was born in 1984, hashtag George Orwell. And on her CV, it doesn't say where she was born and raised. Although, Chang'o, after having a look at her work, my guess, my, I'm sorry, my best guess would be the Galaxy M83. How about that? I mean, I don't know. Maybe they have a solar system over there with a planet which breeds incredibly talented artists. But right, I mean, that's okay. how great she is, in my opinion. And <laughs> Out of um, this world, you're saying. Exactly. That's right. And another element of her bio, which I find rather interesting, is where she studied and when she graduated. You see, she's a first-class degree graduate in fine art from one of my favorite schools in the world, Goldsmiths University, of course, in Southeast London. Mm. And the reason why I say this is because, you know, like me personally, when people ask me, because as you know uh, already, um, I... Uh, did two bachelor's program at as many different universities, uh, namely Yonsei and Seoul National. Mm. And people ask me, so what's the difference between, you know, like college life at Yonsei versus Seoul National? And I don't talk about that much about curriculum. I don't talk that much about, you know, all the other things uh, the on-campus life have to offer. The number one thing that comes to my mind is, hey, Yonsei is embedded in the Shinchon slash Hongdae area. Right, okay. Seoul National University is on a mountain. <laughs> 
Now, technically speaking, Yonsei is also on a mountain, but it's a sm- way smaller one. Right, of course. What okay. I'm trying to say is when you're a young college student and you're surrounded by that kind of really, really super cultural and artistic environment, I'm talking about Yonsei, of course, right here. So it's, you know, it's not just about what the school has to offer in terms of on-campus life and curriculum. It's also about the extracurricular activities you will pursue and be familiar with for your four years in college, right? Right. So you're saying Omyo Cho was influenced by her surroundings as much as the school at Goldsmiths. I would say if that's if she says that herself, I wouldn't be surprised okay. at all, right? So that's the case because if you think about Southeast London now, again, Goldsmith is Goldsmith. It's different from, say, for example, an Oxbridge uh, College. Right. However, that interesting vibe of New Cross, Lewisham, and and you know you go all the way down to Peckham and, and in Brixton as well. As an art student, I think that's very, very, very important, right? Mm. So uh, that I wanted to point out first. And yet another piece of interesting information regarding Omiyo's academic background is the year she graduated. I said she was born in 1984, right? Mm. She graduated in 2016. I'm not talking about a master's or PhD. Talk about her bachelor's program, right? Now, this apparently means she finished her bachelor's program in the year she turned 32. Right. Okay, that's interesting. Yes. So a couple of remarks I want to make about this. Now, in the art world, there are a considerable number of talents who discover their artistic potential and desire later in life. Hence, begin relevant studies a few years later than the ones who go to art college right after high school. That's number one, mm. okay? So she's not the only one. That's what I'm trying to say. And sure. number two, in the case of Omyo Cho, now, while I don't know the full story behind her academic timeline yet, what I do know is that you can't help but be amazed at how it seems her craft is a fascinating combination of academic excellence from a globally prestigious art school and a colossal bundle of life experience, reflection, and insight. I mean, it just makes you wonder what she's been through to come up with these incredibly insightful ideas behind her breathtaking works. And last but not least, she's so far exhibited her works through a healthy number of solo shows and group shows. Uh, She's also the winner of the highly prestigious Surim Art Award in 2020. Right, so despite starting her art career later in her life than perhaps mm-hmm. uh, some of the artists we've talked about before, it seems that uh, she has still produced remarkable works, perhaps because of her life experience, uh, you're saying, adding perhaps extra levels of uh, depth and meaning. If that's actually the case, I wouldn't be surprised. And she's won awards and put on shows as well, so mm-hmm. she's been successful to boot. So I don't think you've told us, what is she known for exactly? What is her craft? Great. So Omyo Cho is a sculptor, installation artist, and video artist. She's also the author of a collection of short stories titled Trace of Things Unmentioned, based on the works of her 2018 solo exhibition of the same name. Now, in terms of subject matter, while she explores a number of different topics, they all seem to be in a common domain, the trilateral relationship between humanity, technology, and the repercussions of technological-slash-industrial development, such as environmental disasters, online criminal activity, and the dominance of technology over humanity. Mm. Right? Now, for instance, through her 2022 solo show, New the Hallucination, she created a science fiction world inspired by a rather controversial scientific study which was published in 2018. And it's a study regarding nudibranx. And nudibranx are a type of sea slugs. And what the scientists did with these uh, sea slugs is they divided them into two groups, group A and B, 
what they did was for group A mm. through electric shock they made them go through some kind of a really really interesting experience and then extracted the RNA molecules from them injected those molecules into group B who didn't go through that actual physical experience of electric shock what happened when they injected those RNA molecules into the brains of the slugs in group B is that they responded in a way as if they experienced those electric shocks themselves. This right? sounds like science fiction indeed. Exactly, but this is something that actually happened. It's a mm. very, very controversial study. And Omicho studied this, and she, uh, she de- based on the scientific study, she depicted a future where humanity failed to overcome the climate crisis, thus the sea level has risen to a point where humanity has evolved into a new marine animal species which has the future technology of perfectly transferring the RNA molecules which contain the memories of past humans or other beings into their brains. Thus, not study the past, but live the past. Mm. Live the experience of the other. Hence, be the other. Right. Now, Omyo Cho describes this new world as a dystopia, and this is the reason why I made the George Orwell reference earlier, a future where memories have become commodities and have different market values. Like, for example, if you are very wealthy, maybe you'll be able to purchase the memories of, say, a past movie star. And if you're not, maybe you'll go to some kind of a black market, and what they'll offer you is like the memories of, say, a victim of terrorist attack. Obviously, the price is going to be very different. The market Mm. structure is going to be very, very different, right? Now, although I would say, you know, the memories of the movie star may not just be completely beautiful, if you know what I mean, right? However, by doing so, she inspires her audience in a number of aesthetic and philosophical ways. Now, the aesthetics is a no-brainer. Her works are just so incredibly sophisticated and sublime. You don't need an art degree to get that, Mm. right? And philosophically speaking, we can, well, not too difficultly ponder a few significant questions, such as A, what set of new ethics do we need to develop which can ethically govern the direction of technological development? B, how do we apply ethics to the market economies of today and tomorrow? And C, last but not least, how do we overcome the climate crisis, thus prevent not just its environmental disasters, but also the political and economic ones? Wow, so there's a lot going on there, not just visually and on the surface, but it's asking a lot of uh, questions, big questions underneath Absolutely. as well, it seems then. So then tell us about her solo exhibition that you went to. Yes, uh, the title of this exhibition is Altered Fluid. The venue is Surin Cube, a fantastic art space in a fantastic neighborhood. We're talking about the Tonhwamun area of the Chongnogu district. Now, Tonhwamun is the main gate of Changdeokgung Palace. It's about a 10-minute walk away east from the quote-unquote big palace, the Gyeongbokgung Palace. And the reason why I said quote-unquote big is that despite Gyeongbokgung Palace, of course, being the main palace, palace of the Joseon dynasty. In terms of area, Changdeokgung is actually a bit bigger. So that's, that's a geographical fact. Um, going back to the show, this exhibition runs through January 13th. For more information, please visit surimcf.or.kr. Surim is spelled S-O-O-R-I-M. Or you can simply search Surim Cultural Foundation online. Uh, the show exhibits many of her most recent works, including a few from the one we talked earlier, her nudie hallucination narrative. Right, I've seen photos uh, from the exhibition Mm -hmm. of those pieces as well. I can definitely see the uh, sci-fi inflected ideas in her pieces. Uh, Really 
delicate, slightly grotesque even, mm-hmm. uh, glass creatures, I think yes. they were, uh, that she's created. We'll have With pictures. With skeletons, yes. Exactly. We'll mm-hmm. have uh, pictures on our Instagram, kbs underscore crow24 as well, for any listeners curious. That's where we're going to leave it. Joe, thank you for telling us about another fascinating artist and exhibition, and we look forward to the next one. Take care. Lovely. Hi, I'm Austin Dean, first baseman for the LG Twins, and you are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come now to Morning Edition Preview, our closing segment, looking at some interesting features and reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jang. Okay, so what do you have for us first? I have chosen Lee Jung-ju's article in the national section of the Korea Herald. It's about how the Seoul Metropolitan Government has chosen the colour of Seoul. It's part of a new initiative, and it was announced that Sky Coral has been chosen to represent the city next year. Okay, before we take a look at why Sky Coral was chosen, Mm. what does the colour of Seoul mean exactly? So the city wanted to find one colour that would light up the famous landmarks around Seoul in the night next year. The landmarks include Ensel Tower, Lottewell Tower, Dongdaemun Design Plaza and Seoul City Hall. A survey was conducted to find out which colour would be the best choice, the right fit. And what the survey found out was uh, places frequently visited by Seoul citizens and their key interests between 2022 and 2023. One of the highest results was leisure activities at Han River Parks. And the time period that came up the most was 5pm to 7pm. Right. So the city government then took this information and Mm -hmm. came up with a colour that would best match this survey's results then. Exactly. Yeah. The article mentions that sky coral was chosen because it is a colour derived from the pink sky when the sun sets over the Han River. Right. Okay, I see. Yeah. So uh, a picture of uh, the Ansel Tower lit up in sky coral is included so you can get an idea of what it looks like. But if you're in Seoul next year, you'll be able to see it in person. And I believe that there are plans to create a festival based around the colour of Seoul. So I'm sure we'll see more events next year. Interesting. OK, so all that to look out for next yes. year then. Uh, Seoul's colour is sky coral. Yes. That's one to, uh, yes, take note of. <laughs> Let's continue on to our next article. What do you have for us? It is Park and Seoul's article in the weekend section of the Korea Times. So what a park has done is gather information about some art exhibitions that people could see this winter. There are a variety of choices, so it might be worth reading the article so that you can see if any of the exhibitions interest you. I'll just go through one of them now. Okay, so walk us through the event that you have chosen. I have chosen Colour and Gesture at uh, Thaddeus Ropak Solm. This is actually the first solo exhibition of the late 20th century Venetian artist Emilio Vedova. The article mentions that the exhibition features paintings produced from the early 1980s to 2006, which was actually the final year of the artist's life. Mm. His works are created by mixing the sand from his hometown with acrylic paint. The gallery describes each of his dynamic strokes as a means to express his raw and at times violent reaction to the world around him. This makes sense because the artist grew up during World War II. Yeah, I thought it looked like an interesting exhibition and possibly the only time that many people here in Seoul will be able to see the artist's works. Right. Yeah, so you can see the pictures of some of the artworks in the article and you can also read about the other exhibitions that are taking place this winter. So yeah, give it a read. Okay, that's where we're going to wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.
And that's why we wrap up our show as well. Thank you for staying with us. Do join us again then for more news, views, and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-woo, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.